off the ball. If he gets a knighthood, it'll be the services to insomnia because it's a boring way of playing. <laughs> There's 20 different stories to say that fit into this. It's why we love sports. It's the storytelling element of sport. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. The F1 Pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome along and uh, really excited about this. This is episode one of the F1 Pod on Off the Ball. It's going to be weekly between now and the end of the season, live on Wednesdays. So the uh, F1 podcast feed and the Off the Ball daily podcast feed are where you'll get them. Uh, the usual places where you get your podcast as well and youtube.com forward slash off the ball uh, for the full video. We'll, of course, have clips up on the, the usual social media channels as well. Uh, the F1 pod on OTV brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. We, of course, want to hear your uh, questions, comments and thoughts as well across the episodes. Uh, get myself on Twitter at ShaneHannon01. And uh, we are delighted to welcome for episode one of the F1 pod on Off the Ball uh, two very special guests. We've got Rebecca Clancy, the motor racing correspondent of the UK Times and the Sunday Times. And we have David Kennedy, the former driver, commentator, uh, managing director of Theodore Racing and director of Mondello Park. Rebecca and David, how are things? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I was just actually over in Ireland at the weekend and it's um, you have an amazing weather. So uh yeah, kind of wishing I was back there, to be honest. <laughs> I can imagine. Getting a bit of sun in. It was, it was better in. than the weather in Monaco. <laughs> well, that, that's definitely a rarity. That is definitely a rarity. It's it's funny because the I guess the weather being a little bit crappy in Monaco, Rebecca, has has only added to what was a brilliant weekend. Well, thankfully it rained at the end. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of Monaco um in the sense of race day. Obviously qualifying is amazing and I'm sure we'll get into all of that, but yeah, the rain falling in the final few laps was um certainly gave us something to talk about. David, you've you've raced at, at Monaco before in Formula 3 and and at Formula 1 level as well. It I'm sure is a difficult place to go. Uh, probably of all the events, it's the one that really tests you. It's the one that probably you're, you're most worried about. Um, you can make a mistake in, in most current tracks and get away with it. Make a mistake in Monaco and it's a belt of steel in the face. It, it hurts. And and it's for the world to see. Uh, it, there's no place that really tests a driver's metal uh, and, and your mindset as well. It is intimidating, the circuit. And uh, I mean, I just love it as a commentator, as a viewer. I hated it as a race driver, but it was uh, it's a stunning event. And it's it for me. It's the highlight of the year. Actually, qualifying on Saturday, Rebecca. I'm just looking at the the points. So there's 23 uh, 23 standings we have now at this stage. Um, I mean, Max Verstappen 144 points. He's ahead of Sergio Perez by a significant margin now, 39 points. And then you've got Fernando Alonso in third. I mean, if we want to talk for a second, Rebecca, about Verstappen's performance at the weekend, he just he's imperious, and especially in qualifying, it was just next level stuff. He's been very impressive, hasn't he? Six races in and he's won four of them. I don't think any of us truly believe that there is a challenger to his uh, third title this year. He was really, really impressive. So Fernando Alonso on Saturday, as David was just touching on there, qualifying is all important because pretty much where you start is where you finish and it's very rare that that changes. Um, I think into lap 24, the top 13 hadn't changed position at all, Um, just to give you a clue as to how difficult it is to overtake here and getting harder as these cars get bigger as well. And in qualifying, Fernando Alonso, as he has done all season, was amazing. Threw down the gauntlet, put in this stunning lap, and Max Verstappen was actually two tenths down after the first two sectors. And I don't know if he just decided to turn up and thought, actually, I'm not having this, I want this win. Um, put in a stunning final sector around the swimming pool area, 
uh, so tight, so tricky, so often where drivers make mistakes. It's, you know, you don't, we're not talking centimeters here. We are talking millimeters. And so often you see the wall go into the steel barrier, but he didn't. He absolutely pulled out an incredible lap. And Christian Horner was saying that he thinks it may even be Verstappen's best qualifying lap of his career, which is really saying something because um, he's very strong on Saturday as he is on Sunday. Uh, and that was all he needed to do, really, to uh, secure the win. And, and I know I'm sure we'll come on to this. There's a lot of talk about whether Fernando Alonso had he put the, tire, the intermediate tyre on when it started raining rather than another set of dry tyres, the slicks. Uh, which forced him to stop again. Could he have won? I don't think so. I think Verstappen always had it under control anyway. So, yeah, it was another absolutely brilliant weekend from him. Totally demar- totally, um, totally dominating it. it. That is the thing, David, isn't it? As Rebecca says, it's, it is millimetres, not centimetres. And like when you see how close Verstappen, all of the drivers, to be fair, but certainly in that final sector of the final lap mm-hmm. of qualifying, how close he's getting to the barriers. And there is zero room for error. But... I mean, that's just the way Max Verstappen drives. It's it's penny or collar stuff. Yeah, I haven't been involved in the sport for eons. That that actually performance from Verstappen in that last sector, and each of the sectors was still outstanding, was Senna-esque, was really a one-off. And I can fully endorse what uh, Christian Horner said, probably the best of his career. Now, you're approaching to back at about 260 kilometres an hour, and... and You've got to give yourself a margin there on the inside and the outside. And actually, if you watch him in the car, he actually throws the car into the corner, brushes the barrier on the inside, runs along the barrier on the outside. There was no margin, absolutely no margin for error. Through the swimming pool complex, lifts the car up into the air on the throttle a nanosecond before anyone else, drifts it up to Raskas and around the two corners. It was absolutely stunning. And I don't think he had the quickest car that weekend. I think what you saw from the McLarens potentially with their new modifications and what you saw from Alonso, they had, I think they had better cars there that weekend. But for Stappen, it was a tightrope walking act with no safety net. It was simply outstanding. And it was, for me, as I said, you know, there's not many places you'll see elite sportsmen put their life on the line. And you get that on a Saturday. Each and every one of them dig deeper than they've ever dug before. It was stunning, stunning performance. When you're in in the cockpit of those cars, David, and 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 the rain is starting, and and teams are on the radio, and you often hear it on the TV coverage as well. The confusion and and people getting different weather forecasts, like you saw at the weekend. So the rain starts lightly on, on lap fifty one, gets slowly stronger over the next few laps. Um, but then it was largely over that section from Casino Square to the tunnel. So that makes tyre choice difficult. And then by lap 54, you've still got 24 laps to go. Half of the track is wet. Half of it is dry. So then there, there are decisions to make. Like, as Rebecca says, the decision by Alonso, the decision by, by the Red Bull as well. It's, 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 small, it's small, minimal stuff. But at the end of a season, these tactical uh, decisions and tyre strategies are so important. It's it's quite remarkable, really. And I think there's a few lessons to be taken from, from Austin Martin, basically. What you got there is there's a great expression, you know, look, look at us, we're all generals after the event. But uh, there's a great phrase that hindsight is foresight to a gobshite. So <laughs> we all know we all know what happened after the event. And it's it's like the case that that it's all happening around you and you've a million different parameters you're coming into your tire zone and it, it's like that idea that when you find yourself up here 
backside and alligators, you tend to forget that the original plan was to drain the swamp and you make a knee jerk reaction. But really, they failed on probably a couple of accounts. And first of all, is I'd fire the weather forecaster that the team had, because they at this stage now, they should know the amount of rain, the volume, the intensity, where it's going to fall and how it's going to fall. And 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 uh, Austin Martin got that wrong. And the second thing is, given the fact that you're in second place, uh, I use the sort of uh, Gary Anderson um, analogy of what you do when you cannot win the race. And Alonso effectively couldn't win the race. So he has to do something different than what the leader is doing. And the only way to do that is wait for the leader to make a pit stop. And if he comes out on slicks, go out on intermediate. If he goes out on intermediate, go for wets. So you have to do something different. There was about a 10 second gap between them and he was never going to make that up. So he had to do something different. Now it's easy to say that, but when the rain is spitting down and Alonso, if you listen to the radio, the communications was, it was a confusing situation, but just keep that in mind, whatever the leader is doing and you can't beat him, do something different. And they called it first. So now Red Bull could decide what they want to do. All they had to do was follow what Alonso was going to do. It's amazing, Rebecca, isn't it? Because Fernando Alonso, in many regards, has been, I guess, the story of this season so far, reeling in the years uh, in many respects. And, and that kind of relationship, even between Verstappen and Alonso, like the, reading some of the quotes here from Verstappen after the race at the weekend in Monaco, uh, for me, it's not a surprise. He's talking about Alon- Alonso's form. I, I grew up watching Fernando in F1, and I like his style. And for him to be here at 41, is very impressive and spoke about his natural raw talent and how he's a great example. He just has been incredible this season, hasn't he? Oh, he has made the season one to watch. I mean, we sort of live in fear that Verstappen's going to run away with it and perhaps Red Bull will win every race. And and if they do, they all deserve all the plaudits they get for that. But Fernando Alonso is the one who's making you turn on on the weekend, isn't he? And he's he might not be winning races, but he's pushing it as close as it can possibly go. And so Sergio Perez, Verstappen's teammate, he's making mistakes. Like two two races now, he's made mistakes, and it's opening the door. I think Alonso is only twelve points behind him in the championship. So then you start having these conversations. Actually, is it Alonso who's the title challenger? Which I'm not sure he is. But going back to the point that David was making about Aston Martin's weather forecaster, Alonso was very clear at the end of the race, saying it was my decision. It was dry in ninety eight percent of the track. So why would you stop to put on inters? But on that same lap that he stopped, Mercedes brought in both of their drivers and put them on inters. So it's really interesting how maybe there was a miscommunication. Maybe the team weren't feeding him enough information. Maybe they brought him in a couple of laps too early and he didn't quite have the confidence. And and confidence is so important because, you know, David, they're talking about Verstappen's lap. You feel like you're in the cockpit with him. It's that confidence you have to have in the car, especially around Monaco. There's nowhere else like it. And it means you can push to the limits. And, you know, teams bringing upgrades to Monaco is a bit tricky because the drivers, you don't have very long to get used to the car now. Practice is only three hours long um, and sometimes less when we have sprint races. And so you just bringing upgrades, it changes. The to- I mean, David will know this much better than me, but it totally changes the feel of the car. Drivers don't necessarily have as much confidence. So Red Bull may not have had the quickest car this weekend, but they had the driver who knew the car the best, who had the most confidence in the car. and you know, that then filters through the whole weekend, through to the race, how we know for Stappen knows his team so well. He has so much faith in them. And perhaps Alonso isn't quite there yet with Aston Martin. He's, you know, absolutely no doubt loving his time there. But that relationship between driver, engineer, all of the strategists, the weather forecasters, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as putting your hand outside the cockpit and you know, not looking at a screen. 
Um, but that's that's why Verstappen is also being so dominant in this season because he's so ingrained in that team. It's you know, let's not pretend Checo is a title challenger. Red Bull just aren't going to allow it. You know, there's even rumours that Verstappen has number one written into his contract, yeah. um, which they obviously deny. So <laughs> to be clear. Um, but you're just you're seeing it, and Monaco really highlighted that, I think. And and as wonderful as Alonso has been this season, and for me, the absolute highlights. Um, yeah, Verstappen is just unbeatable at the moment. It's just remarkable. Um, and and David, that that stuff that Rebecca's talking about there, the the tires and how it changes the feel of the car. Uh, I know this is very kind of inside baseball stuff from a Formula One perspective, and and some people who are, I guess, passing Formula One fans are often confused by the the discussions around tires. But it's such an important part of it as well because there was uh, Alonso comes in for the mediums just as the rain is changing the race a little bit, which, of course, hindsight as you say is twenty twenty turns out to be a mistake. Um, were you surprised to see him start on on the hards? You might explain to people just the difference in those tires uh, because the hards, I guess, uh, comparatively lack of launch grip at the start. So all of these decisions, as we say, are easy easy after the fact. But um, Aston Martin just got them wrong. Uh, not, not for the start of the race. No, I think he made the right choice. Uh, yeah. Going back to the philosophy that you have to do something different than what the car ahead of you is. There's no way you're going to overtake him on the circuit. So mm-hmm. you have to either go shorter or go longer. And the harder tire gives him the opportunity to go so much longer. And if you can stay longer when your lead driver has pitted, something may happen. A safety car may come up to maybe an accident. That's your window to steal the lead. So the first choice they made was absolutely correct. Um, it just, they didn't take the full benefit of that as events unfolded. And uh, it, it really, there, there's parameters that the engineers will see that when the circuit drops by a certain amount of time, they know instantly they've got to change the tire to a wet tire, an intermediate tire. And and it, it's, it's different circuits for different parameters. And if it's really so much slower, then you'd go on the wets. And they'll have all those figures. All those figures need to be read from the pit lane. And 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 and, and I think where Aston Martin have got fabulous engineers now. They, they've really got a coterie of the top, top aerodynamicists and engineers, which they've taken from different teams. So we're seeing a huge uplift in performance for the team. They're probably Achilles heel now is that they haven't got a second driver to match Alonso. Lawrence Stroll is just that little bit behind and they'll see a shortfall on that. Now, there's a whole raft of other issues there because the NAD is a sponsor and part owner of Aston Martin as well. But they now really need someone alongside Alonso to be able to take the battle to the front. And um, But... You know, it was just a weakness there now. And I see some of the strengths coming down the line with uh, Frederick Brasseur, the team manager of Ferrari. He is absolutely outstanding as an engine, as a, as a team manager, pit lane strategist. I've raced against him for 15 years and he's just dominated all the junior categories from Formula 3 to Formula 2. He knows his stuff like nobody else. So I think you're going to see a better strategic Ferrari. You've got a better... Aston Martin and with McLaren's new modifications coming on the car, which we saw the weekend, I think we're in for a cracking season. That's going to begin in Spain. Hundred uh, percent. We will uh, later in the, the the episode get get touching on Spain as well. Can't wait for that one this week, this uh, coming weekend. Rebecca, you you've touched on Checo Perez. I mean, it feels irrelevant as you said to, to talk about him in some respects in terms of a title race. Um, and in many regards, it's it is over from that uh, perspective. And and those rumors of Verstappen having number one marked in his contract are so fascinating. But from Perez's perspective, last weekend in Monaco, 
his first scoreless race of the season. He described it afterwards as very costly, unacceptable. He had the the crash in Q1 as well, uh, in race clashes. As I said, no no points to take away. A dismal weekend for Checo. Yeah, and I'm not sure there's a driver more under pressure at the moment, to be honest, because he has a one-year contract with an option. Um, he needs to perform and Red Bull need to be absolutely certain that they've got two drivers on that grid who can bring them the Constructors' Championship. So the glory is all obviously in the Drivers' Championship, but the teams and the bonuses are paid out on the Constructors. So it's a really, really important championship. They obviously want to do the double every year. I think, as David was just touching on there, they may get a bit lucky in the sense that if Aston Martin had two Fernando Alonso's in the car, they'd probably be a bit more worried than they are now. But, you know, the rain started falling and Alonso, you know, imperious stays second is challenging for Stappen starts raining Lance Stroll crashes out you know I, w- I would probably be a bit harsh on the David and saying you know Stroll isn't a little bit behind there's an, an entire gulf of talent between them um, but it's difficult because daddy owns the team he's not going to get fired we all know that it's really it's a really difficult position they find themselves in although um, you know Lawrence Stroll is a pretty ruthless man and he you know enjoys success he has because he makes difficult positions so I don't know if Lance Stroll is feeling under pressure. I, I doubt it. But um, Perez has got Daniel Ricciardo breathing down his neck. Mm. So uh, Daniel Ricciardo is obviously sitting out this season. He's a reserve driver now, test driver for Red Bull. Um, absolutely chomping at the bit to get back into a car. Rumours that he may end up in the Alpha Tauri because they're apparently not very happy with Nick Freeze at the moment. Um, although that seems slightly unfair after six races. Um, so he is under a huge amount of pressure and he is a very good wingman in the sense that you, you kind of know he's not going to challenge, but he, he has to be the perfect wingman is the one that if your lead driver has a bad weekend or an off weekend or a reliability issue, he has to be there to pick up the points. It's why Bottas was so good for Lewis Hamilton back in his Mercedes days. He was always in the right place to take advantage if Lewis had a bad weekend and Checo is slightly wavering a bit. As I said earlier, he's had a two of the six races. He's had a bad weekend. This one certainly his worst. Um, and he he just can't afford that. It's it's a ruthless sport. We've seen it not not that many years ago. Red Bull are willing to change their driver mid season if they feel that it would you know one driver is hurting the team. So he is under a huge amount of pressure. And I sometimes wonder if watching it at the weekend, I wondered if he was starting to feel that, and if we were starting to get a real sense of what's going on behind the scenes. And not to forget anyone who's new to F1 this season, last season, there's, there was quite a bit of friction between Perez and, okay. and Verstappen. You know, one gave up, Perez gave up a place for Verstappen and then Verstappen was trying to help Perez get second in the championship and was asked to move aside for him and by his team. And he, Verstappen said no. And after the race, he said, well, he knows what he's done. And there was a kind of an inference back to Monaco last year that perhaps Perez had crashed deliberately during qualifying to secure his own position, which at the exact same time hurt Verstappen, who was on a flyer that had to finish his lap. And so then I think from memory, he qualified, Verstappen qualified eighth last year. So there is actually a bit of friction between the two. There, obviously, they say there isn't. Um, but, you know, heat of David will know this. As you climb out of the car, your emotions are never running higher. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk to the drivers straight after a race, that's when you really get to understand what's going on. And I think the comments after Brazil last year told us everything we mm. need to know. Yeah, it's always an interesting time to hear from the drivers when they're straight away <laughs> out of the car. Is that is that the right thing, David? I, I guess from a media perspective, it's 
it's perfect because you get to to hear their honest, immediate thoughts. But I guess, you know, it's not quite like talking to a boxer who's who's been bashed in the head for 12 rounds and then straight, straight away speaking to them. That, that sometimes has its own moral and ethical dilemmas. But speaking to a driver straight after a race, do you do you agree with that? Or would you think, would you like them to have a little bit more well, time? Well, as Rebecca pointed out, you don't have a filter. When you step out of the car, you're still absolutely, totally filled with adrenaline and, and your emotions are raw. Wherever you finished, first, last or upside down, you know, you're going to get it as you feel it. And then there's the interface. If you don't get the driver, then the interface with the press officer who will then discuss the brief, have a few key points to make. Don't forget to mention the sponsor, all the usual blah, 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 and whatnot. And um, so, so that's it. You you get the raw reaction there. But a, a driver's from a team's perspective, there's three elements for a driver, and there's many nuances to this. Is is how good you are with the car and team, and and then secondly, what's your raw speed like in qualifying, and the third thing is what is your race pace like, and 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 um, Checo has a great rapport with the team. Uh, he's he's really excellent. The dealing with the car doesn't matter so much anymore because the engineers can engineer to within a thousandth of a second. In my day, you had a big contribution to the setup, the balance and how you're going to approach every course with how you wanted to set the car up. The engineers now know to the nth degree. The second thing is the raw speed, and that's your qualifying time. And if you look at the averages of drivers over a couple of years, that tells you where the driver is in terms of raw pace. And there's best part of three quarters of a second between Checo and and Verstappen in qualifying. And that's a, that's a substantial amount. You really want to be living on a tenth of a second difference, but it's rarely do you get that. Uh, and if you do, then you end up two drivers wanting to kill each other. But but that's a part of the game where you raise the standard. So in terms of raw pace, he's definitely behind Verstappen. Now, for race pace is another thing, uh, and and that's where the older drivers can still show their mettle. And he's a great racer. He's a terrific racer. So he's just missing that last little bit. And in qualifying, you need it for circuits like Monaco. You really need that raw pace, as we saw clearly demonstrated by Verstappen in his qualifying run. So he's a great wingman. He's a terrific wingman. He's good press. He's good PR. He fits there for the team. And he's a fighter. Look, it is probably the most difficult job to have in the world to run alongside one of the best drivers in the world. And you're going to be showing up each when, each weekend. And it's really difficult for the driver's mojo not to be knocked aside. You really need to be built of tough stuff. And rarely do we see that work. One of the few exceptions to that was, if you remember Eddie Irvine, when he sat along with Thomas Schumacher, he knew his place in the world. And he still drove the wheels off it, but he knew he would still be second best. But he never stopped trying. So it's so difficult to, to take that role. And, and it'd be difficult to find anyone who wants to sit alongside Verstappen and not being punched in the face in respect of the performances that, that you're going to be able to supply against the best in the world at the moment. Yeah, such a fascinating aspect to the to the sport as well. I do want to quick, take a quick uh, short ad break on the, the F1 pod here and off the ball. I should mention, Rebecca did mention the uh, Constructors' Championships just to give you the, the standings as things uh, are at the moment. Red Bull way out in front, 249 points with their six wins and 10 podiums. You have Aston Martin then in second, 120 points, just a point ahead of Mercedes in third. Uh, Ferrari back in fourth on 90 points. You have Alpine on 35, McLaren on 17, 
Uh, Haas back in seventh currently on eight points. You have Alfa Romeo in six, just the two points for Alfatori and one for Williams. So that's the, the Constructors' Championship as things stand. Uh, it's the F1 pod, uh, episode one here on Off the Ball with myself, Shane Hannon. We've got Rebecca Clancy as well and David Kennedy. We'll be back with uh, the remainder of the episode in just a sec. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One, yeah, we go to town on it. Yeah, you're very welcome back to episode one of the F1 pod on Off the Ball, uh, weekly between now and the end of the season on Wednesdays, uh, in the F1 podcast feed uh, and Off the Ball and Off the Ball Daily as well, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, the YouTube video as well, youtube.com forward slash Off the Ball, uh, brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza, real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. Um, there's so much still to dive into. Rebecca, I did, did want to pick up on something you said at the start of the episode. Uh, you were talking about covering Monaco and how it was one of your least favourite races to cover. I know there's a lot of glitz and glamour and boats docked in the harbour and celebrities and all the rest that comes with this one. A lot of distractions. Um, what What is it about Monaco that leaves it maybe lower down in your list of races to cover? Honestly, just the racing. I think um, qualifying is incredible. As David touched on it earlier and he was saying, you know, I think it's when we see the drivers on the absolute limit of what they are capable of. Uh, and it is a real thrill. And as you know, I've, I've done in Monaco a lot and every single Monaco, it's probably one of the few tracks that I always make an effort to go and stand trackside. And I put myself in the tunnel and I stand next to the swimming pool and I, 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 I mean, I hope I don't have a heart condition. I'd probably know about it by now because mm. the, so when those cars turn into you and then they flicker and the agility of the car is just unbelievable the speeds at which they're going at you get no in no other way in any other track do you get a feel of just how unbelievably connected these drivers are to their car and the ability and also the sheer fearlessness that they have it's it's really special to be able to do that and i'm and i'm very grateful and privileged to be able to do that but uh you know i i like racing and you don't race here uh and there you know there have been a couple of great uh, examples in recent years of heartache but it's not generally because of racing you know the, the year that Ricardo missed out and then he had his redemption a couple of years later and you know that was a lovely story um Checo winning last year was great for him uh at, at what was a bit of a tough time at that point um and then he you know immediately resigned for Red Bull after that um so <clears throat> for me it always felt a bit corporate in the sense of you would bring teams would bring their sponsors, their partners there. They would sign their contracts. They'd wine and dine them on the yachts, and they would say, "This is F one. Look how amazing and glamorous it is." And as you said, Shane, all of the celebrities. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I think I've seen the great and good of everything. I think my best ever self, and I don't actually do this because it's quite unprofessional. But I, my one and only selfie that I've had in F one was with Tom Brady oh, on the yeah. Monaco grid. Um, so and, you know, it, it, it's impressive in that sense. But when you're turning on and you're watching F1 and all these new fans that are coming because of Netflix's drive to survive, you want to see the racing. I can't imagine an hour and a half of watching Monaco. If you don't really understand the sport, you'd be thinking, I mean, it's probably the equivalent of the most boring nil-nil draw in football. I mean, sometimes they can be interesting, but um, it's just not very exciting in terms of the race. Qualifying, I absolutely love, but in terms of the race, it's pretty low down for me. What are your, what are your top um, one or two in terms of the, the F1 calendar at the moment, in terms of the racing? Suzuka. I just love it. I love everything about it. I love Japan. I love the people. I love the circuit. Uh, I love how the drivers feel about it. Um, I think it's really, really, really special. I, I really like the circuit of the Americas in Austin. Mm. Uh, I think that can be uh, very interesting, a really good race. Mexico is brilliant because it brings the different challenges with altitude. 
uh, I think that's superb. And then you have to look at, you know, for me, I love the traditional tracks. So I love Monza. I love Spa. Spa is incredible. Um, I remember the first time I, ru- I run the tracks quite a lot as it's quite a good way. I don't get to drive them. So it's quite a good way for me to get to know them. And I remember running Spa and just, you know, running up Eau Rouge. I was <laughs> exhausted and it's obviously the second corner. So, <laughs> um, but it's, a, that's a really special track and, and, you know, there's a lot of chatter every year that that's going to fall off. Um, and I sincerely hope it doesn't because I, I think that's pretty special. Yeah, it was, I was at Spa once before myself and it was uh, sadly the year a couple of years ago when uh, the whole thing was called off with the rain. So um, the points were given out on qualifying. It was a little bit disappointing to say the least, but oh. I guess that's why people book Spa because of the rain, you know, ironically. Yeah, and I should say Silverstone as well, but I, I mostly, I love the racing, but I hate staying in Silverstone because it's always a nightmare to get in and out and it rains and... Yeah, but I, the racing at Silverstone is superb. Completely. And at the Circuit of the Americas, I was there a few years ago for a Willie Nelson concert. Slightly different to the, to the Formula One, but that's a story for another day, I think. Uh, maybe a different podcast of sorts. Um, David, when we were talking about, uh, I guess, Mercedes, there's still a lot of Mercedes fans, both uh, in England and over here in Ireland as well. Um, and, I mean, you look at the last couple of races, like a fourth and fifth P4 and P5, not bad. Esteban Ocon, who we haven't mentioned yet, with a, with a brilliant podium uh, for Alpine as well, considering the start of the season they had. That's that's a really strong achievement. Um, but you, you talk about uh, even the testing from a Mercedes perspective, David. Imola has had a knock-on effect for different cars in terms of development upgrades, and not, not least Mercedes, but they, they did press on with with uh, testing some elements um, in Monaco. Uh, Toto Wolff's comments after uh, very very interesting he was saying on a positive note maybe encouraging because we've never been really good here uh, speaking about Monaco uh, we've been three tenths behind pole last year with six tenths so he's talking about being awful last year and, and, and slowly making improvements but how do you feel about, about Mercedes at the moment are they going to come good? Um, well just given the modifications they've uh, got coming down the line but I, I just have to pick up on, on Rebecca's comment when she ran around Spa and <laughs> um, I used to walk the circuits and in days of old we used to race in the Nürburgring and uh, it's 14 kilometres long and so I, I would leave to walk around the circuits with a map and just make notes as I'd walk around the course and I left at nine in the morning and I had my overcoat on and my cap on and I had my banana and an apple and I got down to the first corner and the sun came out and I'd eaten the banana and apple and it's still the 14 kilometers to go. So it's, it's the contrast now with how short the circuits are. And I wouldn't have dared thought about running, running around the Nürburgring, but, but it, it is really valuable as uh, involved in the support to actually understand the circuit and as well off the circuit, off the circuit. If you're ever going to go off on a race car, where are you going to go? Can you drive back on again? And I've just, mm-hmm. I've seen Schumacher go off in Argentina and he knew where to drive to get onto the side road to get back onto the circuit. I saw Eddie Irvine go off in Barcelona and drive straight back on and beach the car on the curb. If you walk the circuit and you walk off the circuit, you can learn so much. So just, it was an interesting point to, 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 to bring up there on, on the, 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 the study that you got to employ from all aspects, from even for the engineers when you walk around the circuit, you walk with them as well to describe every change to Town Academy and the, the change in the curb and how it might affect it if it's wet as well as being dry. But in terms of modifications coming to, to, to Mercedes, I think there's going to be a shift in performance. And that redesign now is more or less follow the template of the way to go, the way the Red Bull has gone. And, and I think they... They're not going to do, do this massive modification unless they're getting really close to the mark. And 
I suppose the bigger question is there is that that Hamilton is not really dominating in qualifying. Now they're all that end of the grid, you know, there's five in their thirties. Alonso, the only one in his 40s, are just beginning to lose that neurological edge for qualifying. And I've seen it over the years. 34, 36, you qualify in performance just hips away ever so slightly. And I think Hamilton has now stepped into that zone. Uh, it must be already with Alonso. He's down a fraction at 42. So what could that car have done if you had a Verstappen in it? What would that car be able to do if you had an Ocon in it? What car? What could you do with that car if Leclerc was in it? So, so I think McLaren have got the wind in their sails. Um, I think they're going to see a big lift in their performance. Um, I think the McLaren was third last year um, uh, with with Russell. Uh, so no, no, it wasn't. Um, I think that was Mercedes. Sorry. So mm-hmm. so it, it's it's it, it, there. We're going to see a big lift in performance. I feel from from them for the rest of the year. You'd imagine so. And and Rebecca, that the 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 Lewis Hamilton contract stuff. I know. With uh, the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix not happening, I guess that's what happens in Formula One. A story is concocted out of somewhere, and uh, it does the rounds. And of course, drivers are asked about it, and there's there's a, a desire to get news lines, I guess, out uh, from all people in the media. But this speculation about Hamilton jumping ship from Mercedes to Ferrari, uh, talked that there was a big box offer to for him to 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 move next year. His response, I should say, in the press conference, he flatly denied any contact with Ferrari and said, we're almost at the end of having a contract ready with Mercedes. And then Fred Vasseur, uh, the Ferrari boss, of course, said his team had not made an offer. Toto Wolff gave his usual take. He says simple contract negotiations are always uh, simple with, with, with Hamilton. What was your take on all this? Is it all just a bit wind and bluster or is there anything to it? It was a race got cancelled and somebody needed a story. <laughs> okay. Um, this story about uh, Hamilton going to Ferrari, I think, raises its head once a year, maybe once every two years. I've uh, certainly in my career following it, popped its head up a few times. I understand, um, you know, when Hamilton was 12, 13 years old, he was asked a question about Ferrari and he said, oh, you know, they're the dream team who, you'd always, who anyone would want to drive for. Uh, and that somehow he, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, he's, still being kind of coming back to it, but he's exceptionally loyal to Mercedes. And also you say about a bumper pack pay packet, you know, he's on 40 million. And the story I read was Ferrari were offering him 40 million. So I'm thinking, well, you know, he knows Mercedes and not to say, look, you go back all those years and he was very comfortable at McLaren, the team that signed him when he was 13 in the end, um, looked after him, gave him his first world championship, and he made the shock decision to go to Mercedes, who at the time were running around in kind of midfield, new new team back into the sport. Um, Nico Rosberg, Michael Schumacher were there. And he looked at the plans. Nicky Lauda knocked on his door and showed him all the plans. And he said, yeah, I'm going to jump ship. I'm going to go with you. So, you know, he has got a very open mind. He's also incredibly smart. You know, he is not just about driving the car. He does get involved in all of the technical and engineering side you know, as, as much as he can. Um, because he's not, you know, got a PhD in it sort of thing, but he is so smart. And so if you tell him what the plans are and where the car's going and what you plan to do with it, he will understand if it's going to work or not. And that's exactly what happened with Mercedes. I believe, as David was touching on there, the upgrades that they've brought, so they were very um, strong in their belief that side pods weren't the way to go forward. They arrived in Monaco with side pods. Uh, So fair play that they haven't stuck to their guns on that one. Hamilton was extremely vocal in his um, 
I suppose he was quite upset with the team at the start of the year that in, in his quotes saying that no one had listened to me and we were still going in the wrong direction. And then, you know, a couple of races later, what should have been Imola, but was sadly cancelled due to the flooding there. Um, we were, were going to see these upgrades and they arrived with their car now looking like the other 18 cars on the grid. Um, but he's going to stay, you know, he's 38 now. He turns 39 in January. Um, he will sign, I think, at least one more year with the team. I think he's much happier with the direction they've gone in. I think he's quite happy now with the fact that they've accepted that they got it wrong. I read somewhere um, that they the upgrades from it, you know, a set of technical publications saying that they think the upgrades cost about a million dollars. So with the budget cap in place now, that's a huge chunk of their budget that they've put into development. That's how seriously they have taken it. Mm. And I think with Hamilton seeing that, I think that will give him belief to stay. Not that I think he really probably needed it that much anyway. You know, the only thing Hamilton wants is an eighth world championship. So it's not actually at his stage of his career about the money. If if Red Bull maybe said, probably not Red Bull, but you know, if a championship winning team said, we will give you a car that's going to win the championship, but we're only going to pay you 20 million, he'd go. You know, it's 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 not just about the money anymore. So um, he wants that eighth world championship, but he loves Mercedes and he he goes on a lot about loyalty and he's it's not just lip service. He means it. He has been with Mercedes, you know. Mercedes were the team that were supplying engines to McLaren when he was 13 and joined the team. So in his head, he has been with Mercedes since he started his F1 journey. Um, and I and I think that's where he will he will end his journey too. Yeah, all fair arguments. And you can see how the the story's just rear their their heads during those weeks where there's nothing else to talk about but yeah when you put it like that i mean why would he why would he bother moving you know you yeah, i think the bigger did. point yeah i think the bigger point on, on that is would ferrari want him and um that's if you're sitting in uh, frederick vassar's shoes and and he's run drivers uh, for 20 years that have been champions all the way down the line he'd be looking at verstappen if I was Vasseur, because I had this conversation with John Todd when he took over Ferrari, I said, you're not going to do it unless you have Schumacher. Schumacher at the time wasn't in Ferrari. Unless you get the best on the planet, you can only be sure of really hitting the target. And he, he was very um, hold backish because he already had the plans to get Schumacher. But it was just obvious, if you want to win, Schumacher was the man at that time. And and true enough, Jean Todd got him five world championships later. They dominated the sport. If you're sitting in Ferrari's Vassar's shoes, you would want Verstappen. I'd be making the offer of forty million for Verstappen to come to Ferrari. That's the bigger play. And or or if you're Mercedes, that's the man you want to buy. He's clearly just that edge of the drivers that are there. The other one is Charles Leclerc. And for me. We ran him and I saw him as a 17 year old in Macau and I spent two years to try and get him to get us to join um, with the Theodore Prima program and and he won all the championships uh, and he's another outstandingly brilliant driver. And again, if you look at the comparisons between himself and Carlos Sainz, there's approximately three tenths of a second. I'm looking at last year, not this year, there's, there's too many different type of events to get a real benchmark and they won't have got any quicker the driver and he won't have got any slower the difference between Leclerc and Sainz is roughly three tenths of a second and that's a dangerous amount a gap to be a second driver and have that deficiency in speed 
yeah that's you that's... need like you're saying david you need you need the younger drivers you're saying about schumacher so ferrari did it with schumacher yeah. mercedes did it with hamilton there's no point yeah. hiring a 38 year old you not you, you need yeah. to be forming your team around one driver yeah. red bull have done it with verstappen it doesn't actually mm. make sense from ferrari's point of view either yeah, yeah. there's a great there's a great japanese phrase and it it was one actually that came back to me because I was in that 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 zone. And the Japanese phrase is you don't hire an old samurai. <laughs> and at that vintage, at 39, which Hamilton will be next year and, and 42 for Alonso next year, they're old samurais. They're a great team player. They're fantastic to have on board. But to be the man to win the championship, to knock this, and the standards are getting higher every year. It used to be tenths of a second. It's gone to hundreds of seconds. You saw in 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 Monaco it was thousands of a second. So that's the level you're looking at now. That's the demand. You need to be uber, uber superb to be able to be picked for one of these elite teams. And even from a, I guess, commercial and marketing perspective, as cutthroat as it is, the young guys are the, the guys that are the draw at the moment. You know, they have uh, many more years ahead of them in, in Formula One. So even when you look at it like that, Rebecca, the Ferrari on the track at the moment, I mean, there was all the talk of the the race strategy mistakes made in 2022. And, and the weekend reared their head a little bit. Uh, Ferrari lose out. They delay their pit stops a lap longer than Verstappen and Alonso and Leclerc and Sainz dropped down to P6 and P8 in the race, respectively. Um, they'd also pitted Sainz against his wishes earlier in the race. Um, and Sainz was kind of given out a little bit on the radio afterwards. Are they are they still making similar strategy mistakes, mistakes to last season or are they slightly improving in that regard? I think they're slightly improving. It felt like there were a lot of strategy mistakes. Fred Fisser came in, as David's mentioned, uh, replaced Mattia Bonotto. And, and one of the first things Fred did was shake up the strategy team. Um, and I think that was absolutely the right thing to do because last year they had drivers making mistakes, strategy mistakes, engineering mistakes. It was it was a bad year for them. <clears throat> I think the drivers are still making mistakes. You know, you mentioned Leclerc there. He, was, he actually qualified third, but he got a penalty for impeding during qualifying. That he, he he seems to be struggling to get rid of these mistakes, and I'm surprised, given how many seasons we are now, <clears throat> that he is still making those mistakes. Um, Science doesn't seem to have any confidence in the car. You know, we were talking about this earlier about confidence in the car. He he doesn't seem to be very happy. He, you know, there are certain drivers who need the car to be absolutely perfect and set up to how they want it for them to be able to perform. There are other drivers like. And they tend to be the good and the great. You know, Verstappen was very good at this. Hamilton, Vettel, Schumacher. The car needs to just be going in the right direction and then they'll do the rest. Um, and Sainz is very much, he needs the car to be exact. Uh, and I think he's really struggling with it. And I think Charles Leclerc is able to extract more than the car has. Um, but they're, they're just not where they should be. But unfortunately, Formula One for a sport, you know, the quickest sport on the planet, it moves so slowly the developments take time and you know mercedes are basically as i said earlier they've just thrown money at it to try and get these side pods back although i have absolutely no doubt that was in the you know they had those drawings ready to go it takes time it is a development race um there's not much fred fraser is going to be able to do this year in terms of the engineering of the car all he can really do this year is manage the people uh and get them you know, get the morale into the right place, get the drivers happy. Signs is not happy being a number two driver. You know, as we, as we mentioned, it's a, it's a really hard job to be when you're completely convinced that you are world championship material to be told, actually, could you just play number two for us? Thanks very much. The answer is always no. Um, 
So I think Fred's job this year is going to be creating a sense of harmony, getting everyone in the right jobs, the technical, engineering, mechanical, all those departments, making sure they're working the right way. I I think they can learn a lot. We aren't having any big changes to regulations until 2026. So there is a huge amount, you, you know, just because you have a bad start to the season, you cannot write it off. You have to be pushing forward. You have to be making changes. You have to be bringing upgrades. Um, or else you'll get left behind extremely quickly. Uh, but I think it'll be a, you know, it's like turning a tanker. It'll be, it'll be slow. But I think as you know, David touched on, I think Fred has already started to make some changes. I think there will be, you know, the strategist is he's they're new in their position. So they're going to be a couple of like oh, bad weekends maybe. And and by the way, Fred uh, Ferrari aren't alone in making mistakes on strategy. It does happen. You know, Red Bull have made them. I mean, I, personally think Red Bull probably have the best strategy team on the grid and Mercedes make them. They all, all teams make them, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult job to do when you have approximately two seconds to make, you know, race defining decisions. So Mm. um, Ferrari are going in the right direction. Uh, I think they're doing better than they were last year, which I know sounds silly given that Leclerc was really, really in the championship fight last year. But I think that's more to do with Red Bull eking out the gap um, and Ferrari just kind of being, they were left behind last year because of all the mistakes, because they ended up in such a bad place. And so I actually think Fred has got that team in a better position to then move it forward to bring the fight to Red Bull. Moving in the right direction. Um, uh, before we go, guys, we should touch on the the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend at the Circuit de Barcelona, Catalunya. Uh, as a point of note as well, the Spanish GP uh, organizers earlier this year confirming F1 or reverting to the old configuration. So two fast sweeping right-handers to conclude the lap. Uh, that was called for by several drivers as well in recent years to, to kind of improve the racing, which we were touching on earlier. Um, from your perspective, David, what do you make of this one? It's it's interesting, the, the Barcelona circuit, because it's renowned for testing um, every aspect of a racing car. So they use it as a testing venue um, over the years. So it's, it's always an interesting track to see how teams fare. Yeah, well, last year, um, Leclerc had pole position. Um, As I said, I think we're going to start the season here in Spain. I think that's where it's going to kick off uh, with the new modifications, with the cars coming through. Uh, I think it'll be, um, I'm really looking forward and it's going to be a reset. I I suppose the disadvantage is is that in comparison to Monaco, where a driver has an input, he would be maybe 30% of the equation, 40% in Monaco. In, in Barcelona, it'll be 90% car. Uh, and that's a slight disadvantage for just seeing the pure drivers come to the fore. So who has got the cleanest aerodynamic? It's like Silverstone. You would have cars that would be uniquely good at Silverstone and Barcelona, uniquely good at those. High speed, absolutely all about aerodynamics, clean aerodynamics. And I'm dying to see how the, the Ferrari mod- new modifications will work. I think it's really interesting what McLaren and um, what Mercedes have done and the money that they've spent to be able to get their car as Rebecca said same as the re- same as the rest of them but you can be sure with just that little bit extra um money and, and, and people involved in these things it's a million euros a day it used to be and you've got what 1200 people working at Mercedes it's phenomenal when you go back to the Jordan days when there was 30, 40 odd guys running an F1 car. Now, now it's it's gargantuan in terms of the, the size of these operations. So so Spain is a reset and it'll be just a roll of the dice to see who's really got the numbers right on their car. Um, I think, it, as I said, I think Frederick Vassour is, is a man to really watch. He's going to drive that Ferrari team to the front. And I'm fascinated to see how they'll shape up. 
yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a cracking race. We've got Max Verstappen, of course. Good memories from Spain. Rebecca won his maiden Formula One race there, uh, when um the two Mercedes Hamilton and Rosberg collided, and then of course it's a, it's a home track, I guess, for Fernando Alonso as well. So how, how do you see this one going, Rebecca? Uh, I think I think we'll get to see how the upgrades are are working, which will be really really interesting. I think. There's the old adage in F1 that the final sector in Monaco basically decides who's going to be successful in Barcelona. And so if you look at that, it's going to be another Red Bull outing, um, which is probably no great surprise. But but what is more interesting certainly is, you know, it is 90% of the car. It, it is a test track. I'm absolutely certain all of the drivers will tell you that they can drive this circuit with their eyes closed because they drive around it so much during testing. Um, so it is a good, it is a really good, place to go to to get a really good sense of how these cars are working how the upgrades are working the drivers will be much happier you've got huge runoffs actually so that chicane that you were talking about that they've taken out right at the end to make the finish much faster that chicane had been in place since 2007 and i mean we've been talking a long long time the drivers wanted rid of it so that's much faster it'll create it hopefully creates an overtaking opportunity um but they've also made the runoffs much wider and there are two sides to this argument I totally understand, but when the runoffs are wider, sometimes the drivers have a bit more confidence to pull off moves that they perhaps wouldn't necessarily try if there was a wall there mm. and they get a bit more ballsy and they you know, push it a bit harder and the, you know, perhaps the door isn't quite open. It's slightly ajar, but anyway, we'll go for it and see what happens because you know I'm not going to end up in the barrier sort of thing. And that actually can, can create some quite good racing, particularly when they get it right or wrong, depending on what you like to watch. Um, so I think it actually be a really good weekend. I, I'm not, uh, it is a test track, a bit like poor Ricard in France, although not as, not as uh, awful as that in terms of the racing. Um, so, you know, you mentioned there about 2016, Hamilton and Rosberg going into each other, Verstappen winning his first ever race when he'd got, um, put into a, a Red Bull at the age of 17. Um, yeah, so it, it does throw up some good stories. The Spanish fans adore Alonso. It's wonderful to watch. I love it when we go to tracks where there's a home driver, especially when they're in the caliber of Alonso, who has, and it's not an exaggeration to say, he has single-handedly changed the face of Formula One in Spain. You know, it, it has a huge fan base there, and it is almost solely because of him. Um, and obviously, Carlos Sainz is Spanish as well, but, you know, the fans will be there for Alonso. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm certain of that. So I'm actually really looking forward to this weekend. Again, Monaco is is great for the drivers, or unless David's saying it, you know, fear of God in chair almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this will be a really fascinating weekend to watch. And I think we will learn a lot. And, you know, this is the start of the proper, proper European season. So the upgrades will come thick and fast. The teams use it as an, you know, it's a real um, time when, because we're so close to the factories. So, you know, they, they're literally driving all the parts over that they need. They can bring upgrades very quickly. If if anything happens, they can change it, and you know they they can be there within twenty four hours. So things start happening really quickly now. So I think the next run, and they come thick and fast. Uh, we have Spain, and then we have a break, and then we go again. And it's you know so it'll be um it, it's gonna it's a really interesting couple of months to start watching Formula One if you haven't yet. For <laughs> well, sure, can't wait. There's so many so many stories to come out of it. Really fascinated to see how Alonso in particular affairs this weekend, guys. Really really good insight and great insight as always. Uh, Rebecca Clancy, motor racing correspondent of the UK Times and the Sunday Times, and David Kennedy, former driver, commentator, managing director of Theodore Racing and director of Mandela Park. Rebecca and David, thanks a million for all that today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank That's you. episode one of the F1 pod on Off the Ball in the books. We'll be back next week. Thanks, man. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. 
Formula One, yeah, we go to town on it. <laughs>